Well, we're going to continue on in our Messy Love series. Going to try and bring today to uh, some, some reality to uh, some concepts that have been being uh, brought through our series. Last week, Tom said we were going to be working out what Paul said in uh, his letters uh, about this love one another idea. Um, and so to kind of get us rolling, uh, to help you come with me, uh, I've got some fun to start things with this morning. Uh, I'm going to flash some stuff up on the screen, uh, and I'm going to give you a count of three. I'm going to one, two, and then on three. Not one, two, three, go, but one, two, and then on three. Um, I want you to, to give me what is the latest slogan or jingle that goes along with, with what you see on the screen. I'll help you with the first one, uh, and, and then we'll go from there. All right, are you with me? You ready? Uh, you can do this. We'll get this. All right, one, two, Red Robin. Look at that. See? Excellent. All right. All right. Next one, you're on your own. I'll just go one, two, and then you're going to do it. All right? You ready? Okay, here we go. Look at that. All right. Good, good. Next. State Farm is... All right. Very good. You guys, you're good. Okay, here we go. One, two. I'm loving it. Oh, that's awesome. All right. One more. One, two. Melts in your, yeah, yum. Melts in your mouth, not in your hands. Ah, you know what? Companies have spent millions of dollars for you to be able to do that. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> well, they do that because good slogans, good jingles have the power to shape pop culture. They have the power for you to, to, to remember them when you are going to make a purchase. Nike's Just Do It slogan has had a significant part of shaping athletic apparel for several decades now. It costs them millions of dollars to get to that little swoosh and the little Just Do It phrase. However, the return has been worth billions in revenue and even more in market recognition and strength. Over the past several weeks, has anyone realized that Jesus was ahead of his time? particularly in this area, he was, he was a marketing genius. He was offering something that in so many ways was oppositional to what the people in his day, what his folks, the Jewish folks, were experiencing in his day. Jesus brought for them something they had been looking for for generations. Jesus brought hope. And in a day of occupation and slavery, Jesus offered the hope of freedom and eternal life. And then he brought this piece, this genius piece. He lived his life by this phrase and then paid the ultimate price. He gave his life because it was more than a slogan. It was more than a jingle. And what was the phrase that Jesus lived? What was the phrase that Jesus gave us? It is simply this. Love one another. And it took. John's gospel records Jesus using this phrase five times in just four verses. We find it ten more times in the other New Testament writings. The identifying slogan was shaping the writings, the behaviors, and the culture of the first century church. And as time progressed, the slogan stuck and descriptive words and phrases came into being. We now call them uh, the one another's of the New Testament. 
These descriptive phrases teach us how to live out this new command to, to agape one another. Agape is, is, is so different from our human experience. We struggle to put our mind around this, this word. And that's the word Jesus used when he uses love one another. Actually, um, there, were, there were four words for love in Jesus' day. Well, we don't have that. Um, I love a good candy bar. I love my dog. Um, I love a, a, a Cowboys game. I love my wife. I, I hope those are all four different things that I mean. Um, but we don't have any other word to use um, in English. Jesus had, had four words, and the word that he uses here is the word agape. It is not an emotional word. It has nothing to do with emotion or feeling. It is a decision. It is a choice. It is the choice to treat others with their best interest in mind, whether they deserve it or not. And how many of us have that kind of love in a relationship, really, in a human adult-to-adult relationship that is a decision that we choose to do. As a matter of fact, I was thinking this week, man, what can I relate that to? And the, the closest thing I can relate that to for us is with a parent and, and, a, and a newborn baby. What does it we mean when we say, I, I love this baby? Because they certainly haven't done anything to, for us to reciprocate this, this kind of emotional connection or experience that we have in our other relationships I mean, let's be honest. Um, how can you love someone who can't communicate with you? How can you love something that demands your full attention all the time, <laughs> days on end? They can't eat for themselves or dress themselves. They cry, they whine, they spit up. And then how milk ends up like that on the other end, I have no clue. But we love them. We choose, we make a decision for their best interest to do what's best for them. And that's what God has done for us. And, and when Jesus coins this phrase and, and we ask us to do that, that's what he's asking for us, to love one another, to choose what's best for the other person first. Well, because of our, under, our inability to, to fully put our head around, to grasp what this love one another means, we find Peter, Paul, John, all three give us some descriptive phrases that help us to understand this, this one another thing. We're going to start this morning in the book of Romans. It's um, Paul's exposition of how much greater this, this new idea of faith is over the old idea of love or of law. And in this book of Romans, Paul takes the first, what we would call the first 11 chapters, the first two-thirds of this letter to the Romans, and he, he writes a, really an, an argument about why grace is so much better than law. And we get to what we would call chapter 12. It's the last third of the book, chapters 12 through 16. And we come across a word, and it's a transition word. It's a word that says, all right, so we're done with that, and now that we're done with that, and I've explained that, we're going to move on to something else. You know what word it is that we use? Therefore. Because of what we've come across, therefore, here's what we're going to do in the future. And so because Paul does such a good job of explaining why 
Grace is so much better than law. Why this new way is so much better than the old way. And then he comes to this place and he says, now that we've described and, and, and I, I have that set, I want you to understand that it's going to change some behaviors. And this is how that's going to happen. And we're going to find love one another. We're going to find some other one another's in here. As Paul begins to describe, if we will adopt this new way of grace, this new way of God's love, it is going to change us. So read with me, chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And it goes like this. I appeal to you, therefore... By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So here we go. Living sacrifice, lives of holiness, worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It says, yes, you understand this, but in order to change, it has to start here in our mind. And so, so we begin the journey of what changing our mind looks like and how we behave. We pick it up in verse 9. It says, let love be genuine. Not fake, not false, not hidden. Genuine. Not predicated upon what somebody else does for us, but genuinely for their, for their best. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Here it is. Love one another with affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Boy, that's a long list already, what this looks like. And we're going to keep going. Bless those who persecute you. I, I don't even have a clue what that looks like, really, honestly. I, I know what Paul's addressing there. Culturally, contextually, I understand the Jews are under Roman occupation. I understand, I, I've, I've not lived that. I don't know what it's like. But even in the midst of that, Paul says, loving one another looks like this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be puffed up or haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably, live peaceably with everyone. That's what love looks like. I encourage you, go back and read that again and again this week and ask, is, is that what I look like? 
Are those the behaviors that others see in me? Is that how folks would describe who I am, what it is I do, what I stand for? It won't if it doesn't start with the very beginning, Romans 12, 1 and 2, with reshaping our thinking, with a new thinking. Because behavior always follows thinking, the mind, an intentional decision. This agape love that Jesus calls for is an intentional decision for us. As a matter of fact, this agape love that Jesus lived out for us was intentional from the very beginning. We go back to Genesis and the world is created, plants, the animals are there. God forms Adam on the ground. I can't help but picture God looks Jesus and he says, we do this, you pay the price. God wasn't fooled that Adam and Eve went to the tree. God knew. Jesus knew. And in spite of knowing, he said, yeah, let's do this. And he breathed life and sentenced himself to the cross. That's loving one another. That's what it looks like. Jesus' love for us ended with the decisive action to give his life because he first loved us. And then he commands us to love in the same way. Man, is that kind of love born out of feeling? Is that kind of love born out of emotion? Is that kind of love born out of any kind of reciprocation? No, that kind of love is born out of a decision in advance. I choose to no matter what. And we, man, we wrestle. I wrestle with that concept on a day-to-day basis. And I know that uh, the apostles were, were, were feeling that as well. And so uh, in a number of the writings in the New Testament, they give us some descriptive one another's to help us to understand what this loving one another looks like. And so we begin in Romans, and at the heart of loving one another, the first one another we're going to look at is this one, and it is simply to submit to one another. We ran across it in verse 10. We'll run across it again in Ephesians 5, chapter 21. But it says this Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another with showing honor. That is, submit to one another. That is, give preference, show preference to one another. And he says it again in Ephesians chapter 5 before he talks about marriage relationships. He says, We need to live a life, if we're going to love one another, of submitting to one another, of giving preference to another person. And though I I was joking a bit about a parent and infant relationship, that is what we do as parents with little ones. We submit to them. We don't think of that that way, but we do. I give up sleep for them. I give up, and I keep giving up, and I keep giving up for my good? No, for the good of my child, because I have made a decision I am going to love them and do what's best for them. So Paul would write that loving one another looks like giving preference to someone else. 
It isn't that something is taken from us. It's that we choose to give it away. And so often in our mindset, uh, in, in our me-centered world and, and sometimes in a me-centered life that, that we get caught in, is we run across this idea of giving preference to or submission, and the first thing that comes to our mind is me. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, it's, been given away, it's been taken away from me. No, we, we give it up. I, I choose to give preference to just like Jesus chose to give preference to. Jesus submitted to our disobedience to the point of death on the cross. And he calls us to submit like that too. It's what loving one another looks like. The second one another is encourage one another. Um, it is um, to come alongside of someone, to comfort, to exhort, or to teach. It's the same Greek word used for uh, the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that when he left, he would send the, the Greek word is paraclete, someone who would come alongside, the encourager to be with us. We are then also instructed to be, to be paracletes, to be encouragers, alongsiders as, as well. Uh, Mountain View, we call it a teammate in our Me Plus Three campaign. Someone who would come alongside, lock arms with us. A flesh and bones representation of the Holy Spirit in our lives that walks with us, encourages us, comforts us, exhorts us. Whew, you ever had to do that with a friend? Hey, that, that wasn't cool. You, you need to change. You need to stop that. You need to ask for, whew. But do we need that? We do. We need that person in our life. We need someone who says, uh, when they ask, so how you doing? It isn't just, oh, I'm good. Yeah, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. I mean, the person will keep asking, how you doing? No, really, really. How you doing? Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4, chapters 5. The writer of Hebrews writes about it twice in chapter 3 and chapter 10. Someone that would come alongside, lock arms, walk with us, and lift us up. It's what loving one another looks like. Third thing is a compilation of a couple of ideas wrapped around the idea of caring for, care for one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, another one of Paul's letters, uh, the Greek word in 1 Corinthians 12, 25 about care for one another means to, to look out for or provide for someone. Uh, we opened up this series talking about the, the Good Samaritan. Uh, and this is the, the care of the Good Samaritan on the scene. Uh, he was there and, and he saw him and, he, and immediately he took care of, uh, of his wounds. The second uh, concept or the second word in this idea of caring for one another uh, comes from Galatians 6, and it's the Greek uh, word translated to bear or to, to carry or uphold or sustain. We go back to the Good Samaritan. Not only did he care for his wounds there, but what's he do? He picks him up and he puts him on, on, his, on his ride. He gets off of his ride. He puts the, 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 the hurt gentleman on his ride, and he walks and allows the hurt man to be carried to, to, the, to safety. 
And the third part of this is in 1 Peter chapter 4. And, and the Greek word is translated hospitable. It means to be generous, especially towards guests. And that, that's the innkeeper. Man comes, he walks in. Now, now imagine, you walk to your front door, and a guy says, oh, here, would you take care of this guy until he's well? The guy's half dead. Like, sure, come on in, bring him in. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. I don't know how long he's going to be here. He's, you know, half dead, but uh, it'd be good if you could. Yeah, you bet. Bring him into my house. I'll, I'll take him in. I'll... Man, when was the last time you let somebody you didn't know in your front door, let alone somebody that was sick in your front door? But if we put all three of those together, this idea of caring for one another is what we want to happen in our groups at Mountain View, whether you're in a men's group or a women's group or a home group. That's why we want everybody in a group, because it's in a group that we get to care for one another. We get to take care of the immediate needs that we would have. We get to, we get to bear up one another, lock arms, and walk along a, a difficult road together. We get to receive folks in and say, hey, come find a place to belong with us and receive care. And I've watched it happen time and time again in our groups this year. It's been an incredible picture to see. It's what loving one another looks like. The fourth one another that uh, the writers write about in the New Testament is, is to bear with one another. This, this idea goes beyond caring, beyond the immediate. It goes beyond patience. Um, <laughs> the Greek word literally means uh, to put up with or to endure. It's a, this is a tall order. Are there people in your life that you put up with? Or that you probably should put up with, but you don't? Um, are there people in your life that you uh, endure uh, in your life? Um, man, maybe you're one of the people that other people endure. Um, <laughs> but this bear with one another closes the back door on one of our escape clauses. Well, I can't love them or care for her or encourage them because enlist their irritation. Bear with one another does away with that. It says, you know what, you can't use that. That's not what love looks like. Love looks like you putting up with their irritation. There was a kid in our youth group when I was a teen. Uh, he's one of those folks who is easily to, to dismiss. Um, he didn't understand, didn't get social cues. Um, he, he was awkward around people. Um, man, when he walked in the room, everybody was like, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you get it. I totally blew him off. That was wrong. That was not loving one another. I was called as a believer to bear with. To love one another, we have to put up with or endure even those people whose personalities rub us the wrong way. Paul might have said it like this, get over it. It's what loving one another looks like.
fifth one another that helps us to understand what this loving one another looks like is, is serve one another. It comes from Galatians 5 and 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, these two verses use two different Greek words that we translate into our English word serve. See, again, the inefficiencies, the deficiencies of our English language. Um, but Galatians uses the Greek word for a bond servant, someone who serves out of duty. First Peter uses the Greek word for someone who waits upon or ministers to someone else's need. And so when we put them together, the concept draws a picture of someone who willingly ministers or waits on another, even to the point of duty, of sacrificing his or her own comfort or freedom. Let's go back to the Good Samaritan. The two guys who, by training and position, should have stopped by to help the beaten man out. And what did they do? They walked on the other side of the road to go around him. And the man who had the most reason to walk by stopped and served the needs of the beaten man willingly and sacrificially. Of all of the one another's in our list today, this one might be the most countercultural directive of the whole thing. In a me-centric, accomplishment-driven culture, we have to intentionally, with forethought, often choose to serve, especially when serving comes at our own expense. To live out this one another command, we must intentionally, intentionally choose to serve. To be willing to see in the moment to stop the task that we are working to accomplish and to place the needs of people as a priority of our day. Serving one another is what love looks like. Number six, forgive one another. This can be one of the most difficult of these seven behaviors we're going to talk about this morning. In forgiving, I have to let go of my right to make justice happen, to experience revenge, to seek vengeance, to receive compensation for something that's been wrongly done to me. However, it is only in forgiveness that we are freed from the bondage of anger and vengeance that binds us and holds us captive. Twice, Paul writes that we are to be people of forgiveness. Once in Ephesians once in Colossians. When I think of forgiveness, I'm, I'm drawn back to the Old Testament story of Joseph. Joseph who was sold into slavery by whom? By his own flesh and blood. He's taken from his home and his family by his own brothers. Taken away, literally a world away from home, never to come back. Many years later, his brothers stand before Joseph to ask her food in the midst of a famine, have no idea who he is, do not recognize him. What is our human response? Joseph is second command in the most powerful kingdom in all of the world in that day. He has hurt, he has obligation, he has right. And he has the weight of the most powerful nation behind him. And what is Joseph's response to his brothers? 
Joseph made a hasty exit because he was overcome with emotion for his brother and wanted to cry. And going into his private room, he wept. The sight of Benjamin after Joseph's long separation from his family was a raw reminder of his other brother's cruel deception. And though God had granted Joseph favor during the dark days of his slavery and unjust imprisonment, the young boy standing in front of him represented undeniable proof of what Joseph had lost. Not only a beloved brother, but a beloved father and a homeland. And surely Joseph's right was to repay his brothers for what they had done. Yes, Humanly. But that's not the response that Joseph gives. Joseph devises a plan that would reconcile himself back to his family. He could have punished his brothers a thousand times over for their behavior. Instead, he chose to extend forgiveness. It's what loving one another looks like. When others affect the course of your life, you face a moment of decision. Though you cannot change the past, you can affect the future by your response to the wrong you suffered at someone else's hands. You can feed the fire of bitterness, or you can hold your scars before God and ask for grace to forgive others for what they have done. Which do you choose? D.L. Moody said it this way, the voice of sin is loud, yes. But the voice of forgiveness is louder. Forgive one another. It's what loving one another looks like. The last one's very simple. It's only mentioned once, but it is predicated on all the rest. One simple verse, one simple directive. Intercede for one another as we walk through this journey of life. James says in what we know as chapter 5, pray for one another. And I can't pray for someone if I'm not willing to forgive them. I can't pray for someone if I'm not willing to serve them. I can't pray for someone if I'm, if I'm not caring for their needs. I can't pray for someone if I'm not willing to encourage them uh, to their best. I can't pray for someone if I'm not willing to submit, to give away for their greater need. So I leave pray for one another for the last because it's predicated on all the rest. Man, I want us to be a people of prayer. I want us to be praying for one another, but we've got to exercise the rest. We're going to do the last. What fills the pages of your prayer journal? What do the bulk of your conversations with God consist of? Yourself or others? Loving one another would say, our journal is filled with prayers of the lost and the saved in our life. To love one another, we must simply pray for one another. You know, Jesus promised that he would draw all men unto himself. How's he going to do that? Well, there is a work that Jesus does in people's lives as he prods and pokes on them. But folks, loving one another 
It's one of the ways that we get to be a part of Jesus, drawing all men unto himself. Um, there is nothing in my carnal self that is attractive that would draw people, that would cause people to go, wow, I want to know what's going on in his life. But when I learn how to one another, there is an attractiveness there that Jesus uses to be light from that radiates out, that attraction draws other people, not to me, not to you, but to the Jesus in you. Loving one another in these concrete ways is the way that we get to be a part of that plan. Submitting, encouraging, caring for, bearing with, serving, forgiving, praying for one another provide a vivid and distinct contrast to the world around us. And it shapes behaviors and it shapes a culture of our church that will draw all men to Jesus. And folks, I want to be a church <laughs> that is bright. And because of our one another's, people stop and are drawn to Jesus. Only one question remains. Will you allow Jesus to transform your thinking so that as a disciple, you might want another like the rabbi? God, you are abundantly patient and full of grace. <laughs> oh, and I so much am thankful that we get to live under grace, not under the law. And God, I recognize that means I have to have some transformation that happens in my mind. Most of the time, every day. So that my behavior is like Jesus commanded. So that my behavior is attractive to a world looking for something that is so different than what they are experiencing. Something that gives them hope. So God, help us as a church to love one another, to put it to practice day in and day out with each other and with the world around us so that we might get to be a part of bringing people to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.